Hi, folks. Thanks. Uh, I'm Scissors. I'm an alcoholic, and I'm very happy to be here. I'm not in my own home right now, so um, if there are interruptions, uh, we may just have to uh, deal with that because I'm not quite sure how the family uses this space. Uh, they understand what's going on. I, I just don't know if they're going to be forced to come in for some reason. So, you know, I thought a lot about how to go about this. You know, I just... I had 32 years on January 4th and, um, you know, it was so easy to be a podium speaker, uh, you know, when I had like say five years, you know, it was real clear what, what the job was, what it was like, what happened and what it's like now, you know, when you've been sober for five years, that paradigm fits well and works well, but you know, I drank for 13 years and I've been sober for 32. So that, you know, like that, that, that uh, layout of uh, that outline, you know, um, it doesn't immediately translate in the, uh, the highest and best purpose. And then Marsha sent me a message yesterday. It said, you share in any way you like and anything you like for as long as you like, no censorship. No. And I thought, I'm just going to mime, you know, I started to make myself laugh. I'm just going to mime my sobriety or I'm going to cry for 30 minutes and at the end say, thank you for letting me share. You know, like those things would be perfectly, slightly artistic, but they would not uh, misrepresent my experience. <laughs> they would totally fit. Um, so the, the overwhelming part of this, my sobriety that I need to speak to at the moment is really a very new part. And it's a part that I only discovered about three years ago. Um, and when I was a little kid and a, and a misfit and uncertain how to communicate with people and utterly bereft the day I was left at daycare, I mean, those daycare women could not get my mom back in that building fast enough to get me out of there. I was completely incapable of um, socializing with those other kids. And I remember the moment. It was one of my first early out-of-body moments. And I can see myself standing by that door, desperate for my mother return, for my mother to return. And um, that kind of reaction to society went on, um, certainly through my drinking. And didn't get that much better. It improved, but it didn't get that much better in, in sobriety. And the home life was really nuts as a kid. Um, my dad was, um, a, 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 a crooked, crooked guy and, um, on an international level. So we got carted around to these bizarre places under these bizarre circumstances, always thinking we were going to have some kind of fabulous adventure. And instead, you know, we're lost in the Sahara at two o'clock in the morning, or we're on a flight, you know, from Egypt to Israel. And I can see off the wing of each plane, you know, that what's, I, I mean, I knew, we knew our, because of his industry understood what, what I was seeing. I was seeing these uh, jet fighter escort planes off either wing. And like, that was scary. Uh, you know, um, being pushed into the arms of very old men when I was 12 to go dance with them on the dance floor. Like it was a creepy kind of life, but we weren't allowed to call it that because it was painted as exotic and, and well-traveled and international. And um, uh, it was just all part of the whole gaslighting, you know, of childhood. 
that what you see, you didn't really see that. And what just happened? Oh, come now. Yeah, didn't really happen. So I was never well stitched together. I'm not somebody who just, uh, great family, great life, well, good coping skills, and just had that mental obsession and physical allergy. I was, I, you know, we used to joke, I was of the summer classification, some are sicker than others. Um, I was, that was definitely me by the time I got here. And it took a long time to put all these pieces together because I grew up in a place that w there was money, marbles, and chalk. You know, the exterior looked fine. It needed to, you know, when you're a crook, you know, you don't want to set off any alarm bells. So the presentation was fine, but life was a nightmare. And by, I was terribly bullied in grammar school because my dad was a horrible person in town and just a mean, nasty person. And all of this trickled down to us kids. And he hated me deeply. My dad hated me deeply. I knew I was very suspicious. I would ask too many questions and he just hated me. So there was no safe place. Home and school were just as bad. And by 13, I was on my way. I was um, drinking and drugging all through high school and um, uh, began to live with the perception, you know, frankly, the danger really was everywhere. There was this thing that they kept teaching in school. Human beings have two responses to stress, fight or flight. So like, I knew I was living in a very stressful circumstance, but I never once fought. And I certainly never fled. And I remember my younger sister and I, we were attending like the sixth funeral of, in our, of our little grammar school friends. People, kids died in our town all the time, dragged by their horses, thrown out of the car by their friends, run over by their drunken parents. We lived in a strange, weird, creepy place. And, um, you know, they died of simple things. They died of meningitis. They died of pneumonia. They died of perfectly treatable appendix conditions. It was just, uh, you know, when you're a crook and a bad guy, you got to live among some pretty, um, people who are really checked out or who are equally underhanded. And this is what became of the children in these environments. So by high school, my sister and I noticed that we didn't react the way anybody else reacted. We didn't flee. We didn't fight. And we began to seriously think that we were perhaps part alien, like this, like alien stuff was on the radio and we'd stay up night and listen. And it seemed like a logical explanation. And my point in mentioning this is to say that I know I'm not the only one, nor is my sister who had this kind of experience where we were so um, crippled mentally, emotionally, we, we couldn't function to such a degree, but yet we weren't dummies that our only explanation is we're not fully human. And it didn't bring us comfort really, but at least it explained this mystery. And it would be many years before I would understand that all those years we'd been told a lie. Humans don't just fight or flight. Sometimes we fawn and sometimes we freeze. Those, it's really four. There are four choices.
<laughs> that the human condition will assume. Fight or flight was not mine. Fawn and freeze. I was in my 50s before I learned that the other two existed. No one had never heard it. I came to understand my life a lot better once I knew that. So at 13, my dad got me drunk for the first time. And, um, and I drank pretty steadily until I was 26. And, you know, coming out of, going out to my car in the morning and there is um, a warning, a written warning from a cop on the seat. I've, I was in a blackout. I have no memory of getting that written warning. Um, you know, um, wrecking cars and waking up in places where I didn't know I was and bits of clothing missing and uh, you know drunk women suffer every manner of you know indignity and humiliation one can imagine and uh, I was no exception to that by 26 I was trying to go to college I had gotten cut money from a car accident and uh but I couldn't live with roommates. I couldn't. Co Why are people talking to me? Why are they asking me questions? I, a boy asked me for my phone number. I gave it, and then I went home and I disconnected the phone. Now this is these are in the days when one phone worked for the whole apartment. People didn't have cell, and I fought with my roommates. Like I don't give a, like that phone is staying disconnected because I gave that boy my phone number. And I don't want to hear from him. Crazy shit. Like I had no idea I could say no. No, thank you. I don't want to give you my number. No, thank you. I don't want you to touch me like that. No, never. I'd never, ever gotten the clue that I had any capacity or permission put a boundary around what people could do to me. The rule was always be polite and say yes, no matter what, under all circumstances, which is utterly insane. And it made for some crazy jackpots during those drinking years. But that was that, you know. And I'm trying to get my way through college. And, you know, I started at NYU and, you know, a couple months into NYU. And, it, you know, it was over. I was living under a bench in Washington Square Park, drinking um, cough syrup with codeine. Sold all my stuff on a little blanket in Union Square. I'm still sad. I, I always mention that because I'm so sad about this little thing my grandmother gave me that I sold. You know, for what? You know, for what? I couldn't have made 20 bucks that day, you know. Um, and then I ended up in Boston. I got really hurt in a car accident and there was someone in Boston who was going to be able to help. And uh, so I went there and enrolled in a school. Like, that was always safe, right? You can avoid a job by going to school because of this car accident money and if you have a job you have to talk to people you have to do what your boss says if you're in school you can just do this until you flunk out and like you can get away with doing that for a whole year and I just can't stress enough how much I could not cope with being a human being in a human place I finally got into therapy and she said well Based on what you're telling me, it looks like you should try an AA meeting one week, see what you think. I went to that AA meeting and I swear to you, I just heard 
my story out of everybody's mouth and I heard people talking about their families and they were talking about families like mine and and I remember turning to another newcomer yesterday uh, uh, next to me and saying it sounds like they've been watching inside the window into my family's home all these years and she said yeah me too and I'm still in touch with that woman today um Janet G um and Tammy S and you know we just hung on to each other I went back to that therapist and said thanks very much but I think really all I need is AA and I threw myself in and uh they were co-ed meetings at the time and this was in Boston and this is when there was you know eight the ash trays brooms and chairs which was a great place to hide they tell the newcomer get involved do the ABCs turns out ABCs, ashtrays, brooms, chairs, no one talks to you. No one talks to you. They all get in a little coffee clutch and they do their thing and you just be their janitor. So it was the perfect way to hide. Nobody had one word to say to me. Um, and I kept listening for a sponsor because see, I knew I actually needed a sponsor with counseling credentials because I was sure, you know, oh, so I was in pretty rough shape. I couldn't just have a sponsor. I need a sponsor who was preferably a psychologist. Didn't want a psychiatrist because all they do is write prescriptions. They don't know shit about talk therapy. I mean, I really thought, I really believed this. And um, I found one and I got a lot of help from a couple of sponsors in my, in my lifetime. You know, um, I had one sponsor die, Her, this was in Boston, you know, and two planes on 9-11 left from Boston and she was in one of those planes that went into the tower. And I had another sponsor, a great sponsor, he just died of a heart attack on the road one day, driving his big old camper. It was a man, he was in his late 80s, that guy was a great sponsor. I've had sponsors just disappear, like, talk to you tomorrow, and they're gone. And they're just gone, you know, like, it happens. It just happens in life. But when I got sober in Boston, you know what? Nobody talked about the steps um, other than to argue if you had to really do them. And if you did, eh, do you think you have to do them in order? Oh, mm, I never read the, I didn't know about the big book. I never did the steps. I didn't know. So I ended up moving to California about five years sober, but a little crazy, you know, definitely a little crazy. And I met an old man there named Jack Bowen, who said, you're dry, but you're crazy. Come to my, come to my trailer park in Tennessee for the weekend. And don't worry, I ain't gonna fuck you because I don't fuck sick women. Meanwhile, you know, he's like 75 years old. He's on crutches. He's you know, like, <laughs> I'm not worried, Jack. I'll definitely come out to your place. And we went through that book in 24 hours and he had been sober about a million years and his sponsor was Willis Kilgore who was a derivative of one of the 43 original guys who wrote the book right so Jack really took it old school and we used the manuscript not the book and we used the dictionary from 1932 and I got to tell you it helped tremendously this was traditional right all of this was very traditional in my fifth year and it helped tremendously you know but I still wasn't right man I still wasn't right and I went to meetings I lived in California I went to the Milano club every day um but I still um would have blackouts these emotional blackouts 
I would still lose time. Every once in a while, I would still wonder if I really was an alien with that time loss thing. I mean, I wasn't right. By now, I had gotten an undergraduate degree. Um, I had dropped out of uh, law school. I had dropped out of um, uh, University of Southern California's um, real estate investment program. I was one of nine women at that time to be accepted into that program. I was there about three weeks and we'd taken an exam and a, the professor came up behind me. First of all, it was a little too, it freaked me out from a sexual abuse thing because he came up behind me and leaned into my ear and said, and he wasn't, he wasn't being predatorial. He, he, he was just being himself. He, well, I see we have another economist. You know, you scored incredibly high on that exam. And I thought, I have to quit. I have to quit this program. I have to quit because that was a fluke because I'm a fraud. That couldn't happen again. And now there's undue expectation put on me. He has a false impression of who I am because I'm actually just fucking crazy. So I quit. I quit that graduate program. And then I would go on to quit a third graduate program in psych. I can get in anywhere, right? I present great. I can get any job I, I apply for and inter interview for. But I can't follow through because I cannot, I couldn't cope with being with human beings. I opened a dog training business in Los Angeles and opened a dog park. And all of those things went great. I got married. But I still had a lot of troubles, you know. And fast forward through 20 years of AA and some years I would get terribly bored. I'd go through like five years where I could barely sit in an AA meeting. And I'd have to bring handwork just to listen to the same information. The repetition began to make me crazy, literally make me crazy. It wasn't all working for me the way it was working there. And I was doing what they were saying. I wasn't having a life second to none. I still didn't, I could follow the steps. I still didn't know how to communicate to people. I still had tremendous anxiety problems and those were all outside issues. And I would see these people bring up an outside issue and you know they're duct taped with a freaking hood over their head and bundled out the back door and told you know keep your share of limited alcoholism and like so i never said a word i knew what would happen and i had no idea that if i would ever ever be well i had no idea if i would ever ever actually be well and i raised my family the best i could going to these meetings and not being right and a lot of medical conditions. And then in 2019, you know, this is kind of like the punchline that I really want to get to. In 2019, both my parents died and um, it was a tremendously destabilizing event, tremendously destabilizing because it was such a dysfunctional family that, you know, and everybody who hated everyone and who fought everyone in the secrets, you know, they, and I knew most of them because I made it my business to learn the reality of my childhood and my dad's activities. Um, and it was very hard and both of their, uh, you know what, even on his deathbed, it was the last, um, it was the last day he spoke. He would, he would become comatose the next day and remain so for 48 hours till he died. He thought my sister and I were his attorneys and that he was rehearsing a deposition with us. And, uh, and there were some things I'd always wondered about, uh, and 
and he because he thought he was talking to his attorney um, in preparation of speaking to a judge. Yeah, he spilled the beans. And I got came to understand a lot about myself. And I'm sorry if I'm not making this so much about AA, but I got to throw this plug in here. I learned after he died, after that, after um, the pandemic set in, my husband said he wanted to leave me. I had a breakdown of, of monumental proportion, which was a tremendous gift. And this isn't like, what would, it, what would that have been, 29 years sober, if I'm doing the math right? And I found out something about myself that is now like practically fashionable. I didn't know it. I didn't know these words. That you can have complex PTSD and never been hit, never been a soldier, never been a nom. Like, I, I didn't know. I didn't know. I thought all that, all I knew from that was Hollywood. I thought you had to be beaten and like, and that was one thing Then they never put a hand on us, but the sick and the twisted and the demented and the trickery and the gaslighting and the, I mean, it was a vein. They were geniuses, my parents, geniuses at creating alibis while, and, and you just, you would get confused about the truth. They were wickedly genius people. And when I found that out, and I found out the truth about me, and that AA was never going to be able to solve these problems that made it impossible for me to live in the world. Firstly, I got to fall in love with AA again, because it wasn't, turns out, it, it wasn't AA's fault, you know. I actually did have, you know, mental and emotional disorders. Um, but I didn't know where to go with them and I didn't know what to do. And I certainly never heard anybody speak to anything like them. And then I start going to these, these free thinkers meetings where people are allowed, allowed to tell truths outside of the lane that's this big. And I hear about trauma and I hear about what my therapist is saying about, um, what it is to have a covert narcissist and the and I learn un unbelievably, you know, one of the greatest researchers in the field, <laughs> um, Bessel, um, is the one who did all the brain imaging that shows, you know, when you're having a flashback, it is not the memory portion of the brain. It's the here and now. It's not a memory at all. It's not a flashback. You're, you're having it now. It's real in this moment. And, you know, I... I was writing a curriculum, an anti, uh, you know, uh, safe sex, anti uh, HIV curriculum for a population at Mass Mental Hospital. And Bessel was working on these ideas in the basement of that building. And when I think I was four floors away from him in 1989, you know, and possibly could have learned about any of this stuff and maybe had a very different life. It's it's a little frustrating. No, no, it's not frustrating. It's it's okay, actually. It just means that I was weaving like this with all the tools I was going to need, and eventually we'd all line up, and it has. And Tesnua is a part of that tool because it's a place where I get to talk about this biggest problem in my life, which is the, the, the brain damage that results from um, chronic trauma exposure 
which is why it's C, PTSD complex or developmental, and my alcoholism. You know, they're, they're, they're not exactly the same, but they are like two carrots. Have you ever gardened and you pull two carrots out of the ground and they've entwined themselves in one another? They're two separate carrots and you can separate them, but um, they are deeply enmeshed. And um, today, I uh, honestly, I like, I became a newcomer again. Sometimes I feel like people think I'm lying when I say I have 31, 32 years. They must think I'm totally lying because I do not comport myself as somebody who is blissed out on the top of the mountain with her 32 years of, you know, enlightenment and meditation. And, um, and that's honestly because three years ago, I like swallowed a hand grenade boof, when I had somebody teach me about fawning and freezing in the face of abuse and trauma and how complex PTSD can apply to me and how one can be traumatized through years of, 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 I mean, one time my dad was negotiating to, we were in the Sahara desert at night in the dark. I'm not talking with the tour group. I'm talking, we hiked out on foot and my mom's overhearing a conversation where I'm on the block for a possible trade for 200 camels. Now, I don't know what those camels were, if they were really camels or if they were code for something else. But like, that's the kind of shit that went on. Twice he tried to kill me. Sweetly, like, let's go swimming and then put me in a the sea during a hurricane, you know? Like, like those things traumatize the brain. And um, I was never, ever, ever gonna have that life second to none that AA was promising me until I got that other stuff addressed and I had no psychic permission to address it till they died. And I had no other uh, compatriots to talk about it with until I found the um, free thinking colony of people in AA. And it's been fantastic ever since. It's rough, it's rough, it's still really rough, but it's rough like early sobriety was rough. Like kind of like, crying while you're doing the right thing. I know I'm crying, but this is going to feel really great when I'm done doing it because it works. You know, I feel that way again. I really feel like a newcomer again on account of those new discoveries in my life. And, uh, wow, I guess that's all for me, you know, and just if I could wish anybody anything, it's to just keep, uh, with self, self-study, self-examination and, because who thought at 57, you know, I was actually going to learn something about myself that was going to um, really possibly rocket me into the fourth dimension and, and get me um, a life and, and a set of actions that I always wished I had. So I hope I have um, brought something of value here. I'm a little self-conscious that I brought in so much outside AA stuff, but we do that here. I'm just not accustomed to being permitted to talk about the whole picture of my humanity. This environment's very special for that reason. Thank you.